This is Dave Larzelier. Welcome to the Balanced Band Director Podcast, a show about music, band directing, leadership, and balancing your life and career. Each episode, I have the tremendous honor to speak to educators, composers, and friends who will share their insights and experiences about life and teaching. I hope that you find these interviews inspiring and motivating, and they help bring balance to your own life and career. Please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at Balanced Band Director, or send me an email at balancedbanddirector at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy the show, and I appreciate you listening. Mike, are you there? Yes, I am. How you doing, Dave? Hey, man. What's going on? Oh, not much. You know, just... Uh... Just got the kids down to bed. Oh, nice, man. Well, hey, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today. Uh, for uh, my listeners, today's guest is Dr. Michael King, who is the March Band Director at Bowling Green State University. And so we are delighted to have you on today. Um, can you begin just by telling us what you do at Bowling Green? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so to some extent, I'm a little bit of jack of all trades. Uh, my official title is assistant director of bands, director of athletic bands. Um, and as a part of that, uh, I sit on the music education faculty. Um, so academically, uh, occasionally I'll teach courses like um, conducting one or two. Um, I'll supervise student teachers. Uh, occasionally I'll teach like an undergraduate uh, public school repertoire class. Uh, and then obviously I'm very involved with the bands. Um, so I oversee all three of our athletic bands, um, the Falcon Marching Band, uh, the Athletic Band, which is our pep band in the winter, uh, and then a group called Falco, which is kind of a small running pep band that we send around campus to different events. Uh, and then depending on the time of the year and the semester, uh, usually I'm, I'm working with University Band, which is our non-music major uh, ensemble or predominantly non-music major ensemble. Uh, and then I spend time with both uh, the Wind Symphony and the Concert Band, which are uh, our predominantly music major ensembles. So uh, really uh, can find me almost anywhere in the building, depending on uh, what day it is. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. It sounds like you got a got a lot going on. Is this your did you just finish your third year there? It's it's actually been five. Time flies. It, oh, my gosh. That is amazing. <laughs> awesome. Well, good for you. That's fantastic. Um. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started? What's kind of your your background or your your beginning story? Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I'm uh, from Michigan originally, uh, so uh, I'm on uh, I'm in enemy territory these days, I suppose. <laughs> um, <laughs> but just over the border, just south of Toledo, so feels like uh, almost still in Michigan. It's a nice hop, hop, skip, and a jump. But I'm originally from uh, the Lansing area. Um, I was a product of uh, Jim Barry's band program um, and uh, played saxophone uh, growing up. Um, Jim Barry and Kevin Culling were my band directors, actually. And okay. I transferred into Okemos, uh, learned how to originally play out on the East Coast in Maryland. So I had kind of a interesting beginning band experience before coming to Okemos, which was a obviously wonderful place to be for the arts. Um, and then... Um, I kind of was that kid that um, I, I, you know, like every kid coming out of high school, I suppose, I didn't really know what in the world it was that I wanted to do uh, with the rest of my life. But I knew that I wanted to continue to be involved in music and if I could continue to study the saxophone uh, privately. Uh, so I actually looked at uh, three Big Ten institutions, Indiana, Illinois, and Michigan State, uh, at each of them, a different major, none of which was music, uh, which is kind of strange for somebody that now teaches at the collegiate level. But um, I ended up uh, deciding that I wanted to continue to study saxophone with Joe Luloff at Michigan State. Uh, and so I started out as a dual major uh, in music education uh, and then Lyman Briggs, which is like a, a kind of a living learning community uh, in natural science. Okay. Um, didn't take long, uh, kind of at that same time, I had two wonderful summers working at Interlochen, 
um, working with the uh, U of M Allstate kids as well as the Interlochen um, intermediate students and lived up there and got to kind of experience the arts all summer long, took private lessons uh, from Tim McAllister, who now teaches at Michigan. In uh, getting to see all those guest conductors and, and getting to really experience uh, the arts at that kind of level, especially after having been a camper. About a year or so into my time at Michigan State, uh, both the curriculum and music got really heavy, um, and I'd had those experiences. And so I really kind of decided to commit myself to music um, as, as my uh, primary and really only degree program. I held on to a math minor for a little while, but when linear algebra came along, I'd met my match. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I had obviously a wonderful experience at Michigan State. Um, it was and still is a wonderful place to, to learn how to become a music educator of any kind, but especially band director. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so uh, then I, uh, it was time to student teach. Uh, and uh, you were at Waverly at that point. Um, and so that's when uh, you and I met. Uh, and I student taught out there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, once again, wasn't wasn't really sure exactly what direction I wanted to go, but um, I felt like I'd gained a lot out of uh, that mentorship experience of getting to work side by side with somebody else. Uh, and so I, I really had kind of decided that I thought I would learn best if I could work alongside a more experienced teacher as opposed to kind of being the music man in a small town. Yeah. Uh, and so... There's only certain places around the country and in the state of Michigan that provide that type of experience. And Michigan at that time was not in a great, uh, it wasn't a great place as far as education was concerned. There were a lot of cuts and it just, it wasn't a good time to find a job in Michigan. So that in combination with, um, you know, Professor Whitwell uh, sitting next to him on the bus uh, in uh at Midwest in Chicago, of all places, may have even been the first year it was at McCormick Place, I can't remember, sat down next to him and he said, Michael, you ever thought about going to Texas? <laughs> uh, and so kind of while I was student teaching with you, I really started between his uh, his contacts. And then that was when um, Kevin Sedatal had just arrived at Michigan State, really started to kind of get my feet wet in terms of what it would be like to go down there and um, try and be an assistant and and work under an experienced teacher and kind of learn the ropes of, of pedagogy and all those sorts of things. And um, strangely enough, when the time came, I actually found myself in a head middle school band director position um, in a community very similar to Waverly. Um, so it was wonderful that I had had that experience um, with uh, those types of students uh, and kind of felt very comfortable. Um, and being down there, I was, um, you know, one of the smartest things you can do as a young teacher is bring as many people as you possibly can into your classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what I did. <laughs> I, I not only did it benefit my students, but it, it benefited me. And I kind of continue to try and learn the ropes. Um, I did that for a couple years. Uh, and then I kind of wanted to get my feet wet teaching at the high school level. Uh, and I really wanted to be part of like a highly competitive band program to see what that was all about. So um, I had made some contacts uh, up by where Professor Whitwell was living, which is Flower Mound, just north of Dallas. And I was fortunate enough to um, be in the right place at the right time and get one of the assistant band director gigs at Flower Mound High School um, and had some some wonderful mentors there and colleagues and um, continued kind of through that growth, pro- growth process and um, for me, I, I always knew that I eventually wanted to go back to school uh, and get a graduate education. I think the time that I spent at Interlochen, particularly with, with Larry Livingston, um, really, really motivated me to want to be able to make art at the absolute highest level. Um, and I felt like the best way to do that was um, to dive in musically and try and turn into the best musician I possibly could be uh, through a graduate conducting program. Um, and, uh, found my way back to the state of Michigan. My, my wife and I, our fiance at that time, both wanted to go back to graduate school. And so we moved back home to the Lansing area and she spent some time at Michigan state. And I did my master's with Jack Williamson up at central Michigan. 
Um, and those two years uh, <laughs> were probably the best thing that ever happened to me, both musically uh, and personally, in terms of um, his guidance and uh, really uh, set, set me up for success moving forward and uh, really was in a different place coming out of CMU as, an, as a musician than I was going in. Um, so had had a couple options um, where I could sort of pursue, pursue doctoral study and um, for numerous reasons ended up deciding to go back down south. Uh, so Robin and I, after we were just married, moved uh, to Columbia, South Carolina and uh, spent two years down there in the SEC, kind of learning the ropes of how all those things work with a big, huge marching band and, you know, really trying to set myself up for uh, success in terms of um, a future job. Uh, and uh, the rest is history. This is the first college job I interviewed for and I won it and we're still here. <laughs> that's, so. that's awesome. Well, that sounds like a, I mean, that's a great kind of uh, plan. You know, I remember when you were a student teaching, you had that, that bug to try to teach at the college level. I mean, and I think you, you mentioned the interlock and being such a huge influence for you. What, what years were you at interlock? And I forget, but you best a camper. Uh, so as a camper, I would have been there, uh, in 2000 and 2001. Okay. And then I spent the summers there in 2002 and 2003. Okay. I was there uh, it was the very end of Larry Livingston's time. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, it might have even been my second year as a counselor. Uh, that's when the program still existed and right. it was still run by the University of Michigan. But that's when Steve Davis took over yeah. uh, the conducting duties. Right. So. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. You know, I hear that. It's funny. And I've had. I've had our mutual friends, Andy Perkins and Tim Seabor both on and on the podcast. And they've had similar things to say about their experience with Larry Livingston and, and at Interlochen and just what a pivotal experience that was for them. Yeah, it really, I can still remember uh, Larry stepping up in front of us, or I should say, I suppose he's Dr. Livingston. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> although he never introduced himself that way. No. Um, <laughs> uh, of the interlock and bull, that first rehearsal, and getting to hear the beginning of Pulse First Suite for the very first time. Oh, man. Um, and I'll, I, it probably sounded horrible, but I'll never forget it. <laughs> yeah, right. I, you know, I had a kind of an interesting experience. My, I went, I was a camper. This would have been the summer of '94, uh, and I was in the um, the Allstate Orchestra. But he he did the band and the orchestra in the summertime, and right. so um, that we always had a we had a concert. It was a two week program, but we had a concert like a kind of a halfway concert. You know, and some of the parents came, but mostly it was just kind of like just to kind of push you to get something out there, you know. And um, we were doing Sibelius 2, uh, not the whole thing. I think we just did the first, second, and last movement. We skipped the third movement. And so I think for this, for this kind of this halfway midweek concert, we did the first movement and the last movement. And that morning um, was the day that Ravelli had just passed away. Oh, my goodness. And it was, uh, you know, and of course the connection between U of M and Interlochen with, with, you know, Dr. Ravelli and, and he was a, he was a mentor to Larry Livingston. And so, you know, it was one of those things I, as a high school student, I didn't really know what a, a huge pivotal person and kind of, uh, you know, influence he was in our community at that time. And I've kind of been able to look back at that moment and reflect on what an incredible moment that was to be able to be a part of that experience. Um, but, uh, you know, just kind of an interesting, interesting aside there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine, you know, being in, in that location and, and with so many of the people, you know, yeah. uh, with Don Sinta being up there, I'm sure at that right. time he was involved and, right. and the influence that, um, you know, Professor Ravelli had on them was, was so substantial. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's all, it's crazy when we, we end up in, in one of those types of places before we ever really understand, uh, right. sort of the significance of it. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back on it, it was, it was huge at the moment. I was like, I didn't really realize I was a Michigan state guy. So I just didn't realize, I just didn't know who it really was honestly at the time, you know? Yeah. And so it was, it just was, but looking back now as a band director, it's, it was, it was pretty significant. Yeah. 
I want to circle back to one thing you said too, and I think this is interesting. You talked about the importance when you were teaching in Texas, the importance of bringing people in to work with your bands. And it's so funny that you said something about what a great experience that was for your students and for you. And, and I would just talk a little about that. I, you know, personally, I always think when I have people to come in and work with my kids, it's about 10% for the kids and about 90% for me. <laughs> I think it's yeah, great for, for sure. It's great for the kids to kind of see, you know, you being humble and you being, um, you know, kind of in their position, but ultimately, uh, you know, really it's, for, it's to help me become a better teacher at the, at the end of the day. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the coolest parts, um, and I, I, the great thing about it is, is I think that this has started to become more and more accessible elsewhere around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the phenomenal parts about sort of the Texas system is that uh, this is very common. And uh, in, in, in fact, you know, um, Mr. Eddie Green just passed away yesterday. Right. Uh, Houston. And I, you know, he had such a countless influence on so many educators in Texas um, and, and was constantly in and out of their classrooms. And, and they call it clinicking. Right. Uh, in a way, it turns out to be more of a clinic uh, for the teacher. Right. Um, but basically what they're what they're so good at is they the people that, you know, maybe have either gone to teach at the college level or have retired, you know, they really honor those people's knowledge. Uh, and it's beyond just them being an adjudicator. I mean, they're they're having these people back in their classroom, depending on who it is that they want to work with, um, once every couple of weeks, or a different person once every week. Um, and it's 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 very collegial. I mean, certainly there are there are certain camps in terms of the way things are done, as there would be anywhere. Um, and you want to make sure that you know, philosophically, you, you align with that other person that you're, you're putting in front of your students. But uh, I was, I, I got this job and it was in a, um, it was in Fort Worth ISD in urban school district. Um, and uh, they, they actually had um, somebody on staff in the district uh, that kind of had that role, sort of a mentor teacher. His name was Don Hanna. He'd been a legendary band director in Texas. And, and, immediately i mean i can remember him it wasn't even always music i can remember him sitting me down and showing me how to make the budget excel sheet uh, which is which is so important because we we of course get nothing like that uh in our undergraduate education um and so he he kind of had the role within the school district but one thing that i was really fortunate with is i had interviewed a bunch of different places and so in doing that in interviewing and then through context of both Professor Whitwell and Dr. Setatal, I was able to sort of get a network going. And then I also played in a community band in Fort Worth. And so I got to know a lot of either current teachers or retired band directors that were very, very well respected in the area. Um, and pretty quickly found out that for either very minimal cost um, or even for free, like they, they just wanted to assist me as somebody that was new and somebody that was really trying to uh, get the most out of my students and, and really try to develop as a teacher. Um, and so I had a couple people in the first year, but then there's a wonderful lady uh, with a career, well, she taught high school early on, but then kind of became a legendary middle school teacher. Her name is Cindy Lansford our band performed at Midwest and everything. And, and my second year, I think I had Cindy come in every two weeks. And I mean, the kids just adored her. And I, I was so young and so serious. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, half of it was just them like, like laughing at her making fun of me. <laughs> you know, like just, just trying to get me to loosen up and un- understand like how to really get the most out of those um middle school students, you know, they were seventh and eighth graders. And, you know, Cheryl Floyd is someone that I, I wasn't in Austin, but, you know, Cheryl does a lot of that as sure. well. And there's another lady that's now retired. She, she took bands to Midwest at Argyle. Um, and her name's Kathy Johnson. She's involved at North Texas now, but she came into my classroom at least once or twice a year. Um, and so it, you know, as someone that did not, was not in an assistant role, and although I had some wonderful educators around me that were very helpful, it was just, I, I, I can't say enough about 
bringing those people into my classroom. And a lot of times, you know, I was the one running the rehearsal and they would just jump in and out. Yeah. You know, it's not like they would come in and take over, but it was in real time, you know, because that's really the best. It's no different than trying to teach someone how to conduct. I mean, you, it's difficult to teach someone how to conduct without an ensemble. Right. I mean, there's only so much that you can do right. with the score. Uh, and so it was it, 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 no different than when I student taught with you and you would jump in, yeah. um, you know, whenever necessary to try and make that really important point. So it, it's so valuable. Um, and I, I see more and more of it happening in Michigan, which is just wonderful yeah. through, through the mentor teachers in the district. But for the young educators out there, man, don't be afraid to bring people in because it, it's, it'll benefit you way more than it'll benefit your students. Yeah, for but sure. But it'll benefit both. Sure. So. Um, all right, well, let's transition a little bit. Can you talk to me a little bit about, I know you had four years of graduate school or five years was it five years of graduate school or four years of graduate school four four, four years yeah so what was the transition like though be, from going from public school teaching then to teaching at the collegiate level you know dave the most difficult thing is pacing yeah um and i don't think that we uh talk about this enough in in the graduate programs um, although it is something that gets addressed, uh, it's kind of like, like collegiate teaching in front of an ensemble is almost, it, it, it's similar in some ways to doing an honor band okay. because you, rather than having your students every day for 50 minutes a day, and then maybe doing a concert cycle twice a semester. Yeah. You have your students um, three times a week for 50 minutes a day or two times a week for an hour and a half. And then you're doing a concert cycle every five or six weeks. And so I think the most difficult thing to get used to is we work so hard. Uh, it, you know, when we're teaching in the public or private schools, um, at getting associated with pedagogy and how we want to connect that specific pedagogy or those specific sort of um, and develop those specific listening skills in our classroom and then have that transfer to the repertoire. And I mean, we really have the time to do it. We're seeing those students, you know, if we're not in a block schedule, we're seeing them basically every day, even though, you know, they're in and out. Okay. Um, but at the collegiate level, um, we're seeing them twice a week or three times a week. And, um, you know, so we, we really have to, particularly if we're working with non-majors and we only see them once a week, we really have to kind of get used to making that change. The other thing that I think is really difficult to adjust to is when we're public or private school teachers, we're fully responsible for their pedagogy. Right. I mean, even if they're taking private lessons, right. we are, we are the one that is responsible for the trumpet pedagogy and the clarinet pedagogy uh, within the classroom. Um, and when you're working with music majors um, in a collegiate environment, that's not to say that you it won't ever come up, but that's not really your responsibility. And sometimes you can get yourself into trouble uh, <laughs> By saying the, not in incorrect not incorrect material, but maybe saying something that that studio teacher disagrees with, right? And it gets back to the studio teacher. So really, um, it's not to say that those things aren't important, and it's not to say that we don't find a way to get those things across. But we really have to look at the way in which we approach it in that classroom setting. Yeah. Um, and I I really think what we do at the college level, and I think what um, K or you know six twelve band directors are doing a way way better job of uh, now than they ever have. Is we're teaching the students how to utilize their ears. We're teaching them the listening skills so that we can you know develop an interpretation uh, based on study. We can get that music in front of them. We can trust them to put the time in outside of rehearsals so that they can develop on their own. But then we're really working on 
you know, who's the primary voice here? Who's the secondary voice here? You know, if, if it's Schoenberg and he's outlined that and where are you supposed to listen and what do your ears need to be open to? Because if we're not spending our time on that at the collegiate level, we're not going to be able to put on a musical performance in five right. weeks on that level right. in repertoire. Um, so I, I think those are some of the most, it's not to say that those don't, things don't happen um, when you're teaching, you know, nine, 12 band, but I, I think they have to happen a lot faster. Um, and that can be difficult to kind of transition through. Yeah, I, that, that makes perfect sense. You know, it's funny you say that about, again, circling back to what you said about how teachers are doing that, teaching listening better now, I think, than, than they ever have. You know, I, I, um, I conduct a community band normally. I, I, obviously, we took this summer off, but normally I conduct a community band over the summer. And awesome people. I love working with them. I see them once a week. We do one rehearsal a week. We do one concert a week. We recycle a lot of music. We probably do 15 or 20 charts in a year, and we do six concerts. And they sight read really well. They, <laughs> but... You know, to, and not to take anything away from them, but, you know, they get to a certain level uh, and, and I'll, I'll kind of teach them sort of like my high school band and then realize, like, it's, it's got to be a little bit different because, A, we don't have the time really to kind of get into that. I mean, when you're talking about trying to put together, you know, eight charts in a two hour rehearsal, um, but but they they certainly haven't had that experience of like, hey, let's listen to who has the melody here. Let's listen. Let's listen to what's going on around me rather than just focusing on my own part, which they're very good at. Like I said, they can read really well. Um, but but when it comes to kind of that bigger picture stuff, I feel like they're not quite as strong as the high school students. So that, that maybe that's just a transition that we've music education, music education has taken in the last, you know, 40, 50 years. Yeah, it seems I'm. It seems like there's uh, so much, you know, at any of the conferences right now. There's, there's so, and you, I know you did one a couple of years back at MMC. There's uh, so much more talk about um, different levels of listening and opening up the ears and working with just intonation and, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a wonderful approach. Uh, it's certainly an approach that you have to really dive into. Uh, and believe in philosophically and commit yeah. to, um, and it's it it's best if it can be committed to very early on, and if the students become comfortable with it, the younger they right. are, the better, um, because it can be difficult yeah. to have students make that transition. But I something has changed. Uh, it's not to say that 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 pedagogy wasn't out there and that you know playing in tune wasn't important. <laughs> I just think the way. It, the way that we uh, approach it now in the classroom um, is perhaps yeah, different. I think that's that's a twenty-five or thirty. Yeah, years I think ago. that's a good way of looking at it. Well, um, let's transition a little bit. So, you know, the the idea of of the uh, of the podcast here is talking about balance, being not only a balanced teacher, like with with respect to your pedagogy and your in your program, but also bringing balance into your life. Uh, and how that affects how your career kind of affects the other parts of your life. So wondering if you could talk a little bit about either one of those things, you can go either or both direction, talking about achieving balance as a teacher, uh, and then maybe also talking about achieving balance in your life as a father and as a husband, uh, and, and how you achieve those things in your life. It's a big question. Sorry. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Uh, this I, I really love this uh, part of the podcast um, because I think that I really, truly believe that this is something, uh, particularly as young educators and young band directors in particular, that we all struggle with. Right. <laughs> um, and it's, it's something um, that hopefully we all sort of come to terms with over time. Um, and and find um, an approach that that works for us. Um, I I can remember uh, as a as a student uh, seeing seeing my band director you know at school all the time on weekends and late at night and I can even remember what car he drives and or drove and and uh, thinking oh man I I. I don't want to do right. that. Like, <laughs> I just, I don't know. I mean, I like to work hard, right. but 
um, that's not for me. And I can also remember um, I had a wonderful private teacher. She's she's no longer in the business, but I can remember, you know, thinking about what her life was probably like teaching in a studio or teaching private lessons all day, numerous students a week and thinking, man, like I, I just don't know that I can go on performance because I, I, I don't know that I could spend that much time in a practice right. room. Um, and so, but then, but then we end up there and we end up in the situation as a music educator and we see the expectations that are in front of us. And, you know, we haven't yet per- perfected um, not only the pedagogy itself, um, but how to manage the program in a timely manner. Yeah. And it, it just absorbs yeah. us. I would be willing to bet that almost every single person that has ever gotten a music education degree and gone to take over a program of any kind has dealt with this. Um, And so for me, uh, I mean, I lived, I lived and breathed it. Uh, I was, you know, teaching middle school in Texas uh, for two years, living on my own um, in an area where I really didn't know anybody other than people that I met through the profession. And uh, at that time for me, uh, I started to do this when, um, when I was student teaching with you, actually. I knew that that was going to happen, right. or at least I anticipated it. And so I committed to running. That's what it was for me at that time. I ended up running two marathons, a couple half marathons, and that's what I did. You know, I did my sectional after school, and then before I went home to make dinner, I went out and I did my run with the running group. And had my Saturday morning run. And I mean, that's, that was my lifeline. <laughs> um, and I, I'll be the first one to say that, uh, yes, the running was great, but I don't think the lifestyle was particularly healthy. Um, and, you know, about, in, I got into that second year, uh, actually, it was when you came down to Texas for CBDNA yeah. that year. And, um, you know, had, met my what now wife Robin again through some mutual friends and started to really kind of realize she wasn't down there at the time, but like, I need to take some time away. And so I started to travel quite a bit, you know, and we were in two different places around the country and we would meet up here this month or meet up there that month. And, um, you know, it wasn't, uh, long before I got a new position where I dove in all over again. Um, I mean, competitive marching band in Texas is, is not the healthiest of activities. No, I'm sure. Uh, it's not. Yeah, you know, twelve to fourteen hour days, um, and but by that time, Robin had come down, uh, and so I had something outside of work that I could, you know, I could really look forward to seeing her and the little bit of time that we got to spend together, um, you know, and um, so for a while, um, Robin was my balance. Yeah. Um, and um she's much better at leaving work at work yeah uh which we band directors tend to struggle with uh and so she was a really positive influence on me uh in that regard um now we have children and uh you know our kids are are three and one uh almost four and a little bit over one and a half and uh they they demand your attention. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not acceptable um, to not be present. Nor nor do I want to miss out on those things. Right. Um, and so over my time here at BG, I think we've we've gone from you know hours and hours either at school or at home, um, constantly thinking about it. To you know, we had our first child, Cooper, um, and actually that was during marching band season. And so I actually really had to trust someone else with the program um, because I was on leave, uh, which was a challenge, but I think a really great growth experience. And I'm glad I took that time. Uh, right. And then now we have our, our second, um, Juliet, and two's a lot harder than one. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you remember those days, but, you know, it, one it's all easy, a blur. I'll tell once you, you have the second blur. one. So, um, you know, it's, but I look forward uh, to getting out of the office or I am a little bit better at separating myself and saying, you know, this day is going to be for family. 
um, or these next three to four hours are going to be for family. Um, Robin's gone back to work full time now. And so, you know, with the pandemic, you know, school's not in session. And so I'm actually the one with the kids during the day. And so, it's, you know, that's time that I, I've just really enjoyed. And um, yeah, sure, they help me sometimes with school oriented things. And we have fun and we go over to the office and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, it's, it's just, it becomes really clear what's important. Yeah. Um, my job is still going to be there. The program is still going to be there, but missing soccer practice, uh, that's not coming back. Right. Um, and so I, I would, you know, encourage, I, I hope that a lot of young up and coming directors are listening to this podcast and, you know, the earlier and earlier that you can come to that realization and you can make time for whatever it is in your life, um, the longer your career is going to be, the more successful your program will be. And, the happier you'll be. Um, yeah. So I, I, I can only encourage uh, that type of balance. Yeah. You know, I've, um, I, this has just come to me more recently probably than anything else. And like you said, I think teachers, I think in general are pretty bad at this, but band directors are seem to be really bad at it. Um, but, um, you know, I used to say to my wife when, our kids were young, you know, and I was, I had just gotten, you know, the job at East Lansing and I was kind of like, you know, really trying to do a great job. And we had just moved and it was just, it was a lot. And I used to say to her, I can be a good husband. I can be a good father and I can be a good teacher. Pick two. <laughs> but like trying to do all three just seemed impossible. You know, it just seemed like there was just, it was just not enough time in the day to be able to do all of the things that you had to do and not enough brain space. You know, you just would come home from work and you would try, I would just try so hard to, to, to be present. But it was like, at the end of the day, I still had so much, uh, so much of my job kind of on my brain about what I think about what I was going to do the next day and the next week and the next month and next year and all those things. So you know, if anything, this this pandemic has been a pretty good way for me to kind of maybe push the pause button a little bit and and recalibrate, uh, you know, priorities in my life. And I think that, you know, you mentioned the running is such an important thing. And I, I that's been something that's important to me in the last year, year and a half. But specifically during the in the pandemic, you know, something that I try to I try to do every day now, even if it's just go for a walk. But, you know, the idea is to exercise every day. And the other thing that's really come to me during the pandemic is, is the idea of reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's never been a big part of my life. You know, I've never been an avid reader. I've been kind of read when I had to, but it was never something that I really enjoyed. And it, it's become something that I've really enjoyed and, and been something that I think is does help bring balance into my life, honestly. Um, even if it's just reading for a half an hour a day, you know, it's something that um, I think it's great to model for your kids. Uh, and it's also great to develop yourself uh, and in a great way to just spend downtime rather than sitting on your phone, which is so easy to do, you know, it's better to pick up a book or, or go for a walk or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I can't uh, express enough. Uh, you know, I've been joking around. We, we uh, were in, unfortunately at the very beginning of the pandemic, we were in a car accident. Yeah, uh, well, that's and right. so we were uh, down a car uh, for, you know, we didn't have to be, but you know, Robin had, was laid off at that time and so it just it seemed to work you know yeah hey let's save some money we'll only have one car well yeah so robin went back to work a couple days a week and i had the kids and i i was joking around with everybody that i i had become the new percy granger because (laughs) i i really found uh like it's just such a positive experience we live in a kind of a small town with a cool downtown area and stuff like that and so you know I would entertain the kids. Like we would just go for long walks around town, you know, yeah. and we'd bring the snacks and, and the juice and yeah. you know, we'd go stop on campus and kick the soccer ball around. And we'd, yeah. you know, we'd go see the construction site, you know, downtown. And, yep. you know, I was walking like four to five miles, you know, on those days. And, you know, it was just a great way to pass the time. And, you know, you got to get outside once the weather got nice and, and get some sun and, um, you know, the kids, kids seem to enjoy it. Sometimes I, you know, they'd even just pass out and I'd get yeah. some quiet time. So, yeah. um, it's really, I, I don't actually run anymore. Um, I suppose I probably could, but I, I just <laughs> kind of, I, I sort of got away with, away from it and have gotten into some other types of exercise, but I do, um, 
really enjoy um, walking uh, as much as possible. So I, I definitely know what you're saying there. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. I know you, you talked, one of the things I think that we're as band directors are, are all guilty of is the inability to say no to things. I'm wondering in the last few years, what have you become better at saying no to? <laughs> oh, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I, I think I've become, I've tried to become more protective of the time away from the office. Okay. Um, so, uh, what does that mean? Well, um, I, I'm on a, um, although I'm the marching band director, I'm on um, like a regular faculty contract. So I'm not on a year round 12 month contract. I'm on a, a nine month contract is how they typically work. And, um, you know, there, uh, there are a lot of things that have to happen, you know, in those extra three months um, for the program to operate. Um, and so I've gotten a lot better at um, delegating different responsibilities um, to those around me. Uh, so that I, I can step away during that time when I'm not supposed to be there. Um, I also have gotten a lot better at protecting the time when I'm technically not on the clock. So maybe it's that over the summer, I only go into the office once a week. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's that I commit. I, one thing that I'm really proud of um, is since Cooper was born, I've spent at least one day a week home with the kids. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked a little bit about the transition of college teaching. Obviously, that's not something that's possible in the public schools. Um, right. And so now that I've been teaching college a while, um, one of the things that I think I'm really pleased with is the flexibility um, of the schedule. Um, you know, and I, that I can maybe I do work a late night here or there and have to do that can spend Wednesday with the kids. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I've, I've really tried to commit to that. Um, one thing that we have to be really cautious of, um, and I, I don't know exactly how to describe it in, in terms of public school teaching, but we, we have to like, um, we have our, our, our merit files and our vitas and we continually have to sort of build them up and then we go up for promotion. And, right. You know, it's, it, it, it happens like every three years and then every six years, it's like in three-year increments. Well, I, you know, I've, you know I, people aren't like knocking down my door, but I do have to be really responsible about like when I can take a gig right. or what overage, you know, if, if my load is 12 credit hours, making sure that I don't take on that extra thing just because, hey, it'd be really nice to do that could you do this for us? I have some colleagues. I have a wonderful colleague here uh, that I, I really enjoy working with. Um, and uh, I, it can be difficult um, for that person to say no. Uh, and so I've, I've really tried. Um, I think family really helps with that um, because I'm saying no for more than just myself. Right. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I, I used to do this. Uh, an example is um, we have this program. It's it's similar in some ways to Spartan Youth Wind Symphony. It's called Academy Band. Yeah. Uh, the difference is it's not audition based, so it's kind of more of a come all, you know, community type thing. Mm -hmm. uh, less of a recruiter, more of a let's benefit all the programs in the area. And um, I did that. I, I started the high school program here. It was on Sunday nights. Um, I did it for two years um and i i just i had saturday football games sunday night academy and <laughs> monday night university band right and you know we had jewels and it's like man something's got to get yeah. i can't be gone three days in a row right. and so i loved that program and i i really believed in it and i i you know it was difficult but um you know robin looked at me and she's like we got to think about this yeah. uh and this is probably the best decision i ever made yeah you know having sunday sunday nights back with the family yeah. so i mean saying no is challenging particularly when young in the profession yep um but we have to think of it in terms of um if we refuse to say no 
and we get strung out, we're likely not as good of a teacher and we can't benefit our students as much. Yeah. So if we can be comfortable with saying no and have the energy we need to really be um, successful both at home and in the classroom, everybody's going to be better off. Yeah. You know, it's where I, where I feel the stretch um, in, in public schools is serving on committees and, you know, I'm the department chair and I also negotiate for the union. And so I feel like I, I feel like I want to have an influence in all of those areas. And so if I, if I say no to those things, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not having influence over it and therefore maybe, you know, missing out on something for my program or for my students. And so that's, that's, that's a real tough one for me, but I, I, I've, I'm working on it. <laughs> That's all I can say. I'm working on it. Um, yeah. We joke around about the, the committee work. Yeah. Um, and this is something that, you know, you don't learn even in graduate school, right. uh, you know, or the, the whole tenure thing. I mean, I, I would have loved to have, have had a course in, in, you know, co- collegiate politics. Right. Um, Cause it's like, I'm, I'm like anything you've ever done before. Right. I mean, there's no training for that until you get there. Yeah, there really isn't. I mean, there are some institutions that offer sort of a collegiate teaching type course that, that does a really great job of talking about those types of things, but yeah, it's a different kind of politics than you would have experienced as a public school director no better or worse, just different. Yep. Um, and so you really have to learn, uh, sort of the right and the wrong way to advocate for your program in the most positive way and sort of when to pick your battles and, and things to let go. And that's something I've really struggled with, but, um, I'm making progress. Um, but the, (laughs) the idea, you know, luckily I don't, you know, you're a really experienced teacher. And so you, you get asked to be on all these committees and, I do serve on quite a few committees, but since I'm not a, since I'm not like a tenured professor yet, right? Um, my committee load isn't quite as high yeah. as more experienced people. Yeah. Um, so I have a little bit more flexibility, and uh, plus, people, you know, they know I I do the marching band, right? And, and they know that that's a lot of time, and so I, I sometimes people I think self-select for me, which yeah. is which is just fine. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, hey, this has been super fun. I just have a couple final questions I'd like to ask everybody. And number one is just the kind of the worst question ever, but I think it helps give us a little bit of an insight into you as a person. And that is kind of the Desert Island recordings question. We used to do this in college all the time. But, you know, if you're stuck in a desert island, what what two or three pieces or two or three recordings do you absolutely have to have with you for the rest of your life? Yeah, for sure. We all hate this question. I know, <laughs> But it's something that uh, that's so important for us to to think about, yeah. particularly with what we do. Yeah. Um, so the first thing that comes to mind that would be sort of directly related to what I do um, is I would want the San Francisco Symphony Michael Tilson Thomas Mahler Symphony recordings. Okay. Um, and there are tons of Mahler Symphony recordings out there. Uh, and many people would pick other Mahler symphony recordings, but I'm really absolutely fascinated with the recording engineers at San Francisco. Okay. Um, I think they do fantastic work and there's, there's a level of clarity that you can get, uh, through, through their discs, uh, that, that you don't necessarily hear on other recordings. Right. So take a listen when you get a chance. Okay. Um, I, I like, I like Michael Tilson Thomas right. and I, I love the way that he views the score and the, the time and effort he puts into study. Um, he's not my favorite conductor out there. Right. Um, but these recordings are just, they're, they're so clear uh, and they're, they're brilliant. You really get the colors of the orchestra as though you were experiencing it in real time live. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. Uh, so that would probably be my my classical pick, and I have a, a side interest. Part of that is I've been assist, I've been producer and assistant producer on some albums, yeah. so that's something that is is obviously very important to me. Sure, I want it to reflect how they actually sound. Yeah, um, I'm a huge Dave Matthews Band fan. Right, I mean we've we've been to Dave Matthews Band forever. Uh, I don't, or we've been there together. I should say yeah. I don't get there 
uh, as often as I would like any more live. Obviously, that's not an option this summer. But, um, you know, I was trying to decide which album uh, I would choose. Uh, I, I think I would take um, two albums. Uh, probably uh, the Live at Luther College, which is the one that he did with Tim Reynolds. Right. Just the two of them, right? Just the two of them. Right. Uh, and then I also love uh, in this. He just released this again on YouTube for free. But the um, the live from Radio City Music Hall. Oh, I don't know that one. Um, yeah. And there's a DVD. Check it. I think he has the whole thing up on YouTube right now. OK. It's really it might be just him and Tim. OK. Um, it's a fantastic album. OK. Um, and then a actually I, this isn't one recording, but it's something that I'm into lately and it kind of fits the topic. So um we all kind of had our quarantine habits for better or for worse right. that we got into. Yeah. Um, I would say my positive one was exercise. I would say my not so positive one was um, cocktail. Making. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I've, I've really gotten into it. We had absolutely no bar. Right. Uh, and, you know, really have kind of built it up and I've got some of the fun tools now. And Robin got me this book called Booze and Vinyl. Oh, nice. Uh, and literally, it's a bunch of different drinks that are paired with albums. Oh, no way. Uh, and, and you're supposed to, like, in a perfect world, you would have the record. Right. And you would put the record on and you would listen to both sides while you make and drink the drinks. Each each record has two drinks. Um, but obviously, I have to use, you know, YouTube and my Bluetooth speaker because <laughs> this is the 21st century. But uh, it's it's really been a lovely experience because I've kind of gotten to experience some music that i wouldn't have otherwise listened to um so that's not a an album but it is it is music based and i would certainly take this text on my desert island well, particularly if i had my jigger and mixing i was about to say so let, let's 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 take this up a notch and what's what's your <laughs> desert island cocktail <laughs> <laughs> well um believe it or not uh i've I've kind of been on a bit of a bourbon kick. Oh, yeah, right. Of course. Yeah. Um, so I made a killer cocktail uh, last night, uh, which is it's so strange that I, I, I'm saying this. It's the. Um, oh, it's I, the last two nights have been a bit uh, of a blur. Bourbon. <laughs> um, <laughs> the the <laughs> it's the whiskey smash. Oh, OK. Yeah, and um, essentially, like, I can describe how you make it. Uh, you basically take, and I could be mixing it up with the Whiskey Daisy, but okay. uh, you basically muddle up mint and lemon. Okay. And you add simple syrup. Okay. And then you toss in the bourbon, and you shake it, and you put it over ice. Okay. So that's similar to, like, a mint julep. It just has it. Well, it, 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 is, it is sort of a replacement for the mint julep. Okay. All right. Yeah. Interesting. I have not made an official. I'm, I'm trying to uh, get Robin a little bit more into the bourbon drinks. Yeah. And I feel like the mint julep, you kind of, you got to really love the taste yeah. of bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, we, this is a whole nother spinoff podcast right here. <laughs> well, I was trying, we were joking around when we got this, when she got this book for me. Um, and I thought, you know, I've uh, idea of, of pairing classical music with anything right. because particularly i have a huge interest in harmony okay. music uh and which is the wind chamber music right. from the viennese era you know yep. that but uh for those listening and you know it was it was party music and um out, outdoor music opera transcriptions things of that nature uh and years ago uh steve davis and his graduate assistants did an awesome concert um in Kansas city that I attended where they had different, uh, chamber groups play. And then there were pairings of both, um, meals or small bites and drinks. And so I've kind of wondered, you know, maybe like if this whole college teaching thing doesn't work out or when I retire, <laughs> I can, I can do a text and it can be, uh, I got to come up with a creative title yeah. of, uh, of sort of, uh, different cl to introduce people to classical music combined with uh lovely beverages i love it that's great um all right well and then one one more thing you've mentioned um several of your mentors jim and kevin and professor whitwell 
and Dr. Setatal and a few others. Is there anybody else you'd like to just kind of give a shout out to or say thanks to for kind of getting you where you are today? Well, for sure. I mean, I definitely like uh, in no way, shape or form could I do what I do without the support of my lovely wife, Robin. Awesome. Um, she's fantastic. Um, she is not a musician, but she is extremely supportive of, um, of it all. Um, as well as, um, our kids. I mean, they are, uh, they are the biggest marching band fans. So, uh, and then, um, you know, I didn't come from a particularly musical family. Um, but my parents were really, really supportive, of me being involved and getting me involved in or or providing the resources so that I could always have that new horn or I could go on Blue Lake International or go to Interlochen yeah. and certainly wouldn't be uh, where I am today uh, without their support. Um, and then, like you said, my, my teachers, I mean, when I made the transition to Texas, um, Professor Whitwell really became like another grandfather figure to me. I mean, we, as I was interviewing, I would stay at their house and, you know, they would put me up and he'd let me borrow a car. And, um, Jack Williamson was a lot that way as well. Um, you know, especially as I was trying to figure out what it was like to be engaged and become a part of another family. And I think he taught me a lot more about non-musical things than he did about musical things, which is, is really pretty amazing. Cause I, I think that's where the majority of my growth happened. And, yeah. um, you know, Joe Luloff, I, I haven't really talked about, but I, I wouldn't be the musician I am without um, all the time that I, I spent with him um, on the saxophone, because uh, I really feel like that's where where we truly, between that and our ensemble experience, not that our, our, our music education experience isn't important, but that's where we really develop at the collegiate level yeah. uh, into who we become as musicians and artists. Um, so, you know, and and then Scott Scott Weiss, uh, I really needed to just be uh, be thrown into the pool. You know, I had been I had been coddled, and he was my teacher at the doctoral level, and he put Schwantner in front of me and said, "Go." Yeah. Um, and I have a huge interest in contemporary music, and um, you know, I joke around that I'll I'll conduct anything, uh, and I wouldn't be that way uh, if I hadn't spent that time with him. So. Yeah, I mean, that's the coolest part about our profession uh, is the networks that we create uh, and that everybody's connected through our mentors. Yeah. So I really have a have a lot of people to thank. My Bruce Moss here at BGSU has also been uh, somebody that I've met, you know, once I, I got my first collegiate job, but a wonderful educator and um, a fantastic person to be around uh, and very supportive here at BGSU. So just so thankful for and you as well. Uh, you know, I already said that early on, but um, you, yeah, you saw me as raw as it gets. Yeah. So, well, uh, you know, in, in all honesty, I mean, one of the reasons I, I got into having student teachers, I felt like it made me a better student teacher. I think, and I think you were or a better teacher, I should say. And I think you were my third or maybe my fourth student teacher. And I think you were kind of the, you were kind of a real pivotal person for me personally, because I feel like the first two or three teachers, student teachers I had, I really had no idea what I was doing. I really had no business having a student teacher. And I felt like by the time you came around, I, I kind of felt like I had something to offer. But, you know, more than that, it was just we, we had such a great friendship, you know, and I, yeah. and I stood up in your wedding and it was, you know, it, it's been, you know, it was just a great, it was a great, it was more of a partnership, honestly. It was like having just another adult in the room. And, and that was such a great connection for me honestly as a teacher it was just great to have somebody who i who i agreed with philosophically and we got along and we were friends and and uh so it was i think it was it was a win-win to have you as a student teacher so well it was a fantastic experience and it it prepared me well okay. uh, and it's also been you know it's it's wonderful i i'll be the first to say that i'm i'm not the best at staying connected yeah uh <laughs> you know and we've made so many moves over the years right uh, and, and you and Carla are two of the people that we have, have stayed connected with over the years yeah. because of the, the great friendship that we have. Yeah. So, uh, you know, love our, love our time at the Midwest every December. Right. I'll, yeah. I'll miss it. I'll miss it this December, For but, sure. uh, perhaps we can, can socially distance, <laughs> some, uh, some, uh, some, uh, <laughs> distance at Meridian winds <laughs> or something. <laughs> 
Well, Mike, this has been this has been awesome to connect with you again, man. And I really appreciate you know giving your time, uh, giving your time to be on the podcast. How can uh, how can my listeners connect with you if they want to you know contact you or maybe just connect with you on social media? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I uh, my wife is the social media guru of okay. the relationship, okay. but I do uh, I do do Facebook. Okay. Uh, and I'm Michael Thomas King on Facebook. Okay. Uh, make sure to use the Thomas, Thomas, otherwise you might not be able to find me. Okay. Uh, and then obviously any of the um, BGSU uh, Falcon Marching Band platforms, uh, we're on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And now the students have got me on Snapchat and oh TikTok. Boy. Oh so boy. God knows. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's a great way to get in touch as well. So love to hear uh, from anybody. And if I can be of any assistance to anyone out there, happy to do that as well. Awesome. So. Well, I hope that, uh, you know, the rest of your summer uh, goes well and that we can get back to some sort of uh, normality here with, with teaching and with band as soon as possible. For sure, man. It's been great chatting with you. Yep. All Thanks right. for having me on. Tell Robin I said hi and I'll talk to you later. All right. See ya. All right. Peace. Bye. Bye. This has been the Balanced Band Director Podcast. Again, my name is Dave Larzalier. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to our show today. If you'd like to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram, it's Balanced Band Director, or feel free to send me an email at balancedbanddirector at gmail.com. Talk to you soon.